All right, guys. Well, thanks, Matt, and thank you all for, for having me today. Um, yeah, even he was mentioning how you guys are a part of the SALT Network along with, with Cornerstone Church of Ames and all these other churches, and I'm just thankful for your investment in what's going on. I don't know if it feels like this, but I, I, you know, I had to drive 25 minutes from Ames to get here, and it's a little bit out in nowhere in more of a smaller town community, so maybe you don't feel as like you're a part of all the big, exciting things that happen on the, the highlight videos and all that. Um, but but you are, and, and it's exciting to be on the receiving end of that as somebody who's just moved to Ames uh, six months ago. And so my wife, Caitlin, is over here, and our little baby is six months old. He's back in the nursery. He was two weeks old when we drove out to Ames. Um, and then sitting with Caitlin over there is Brandy and Caleb Thompson, who are going to be going to the University of Kansas to help plant a church there. And so really, just to connect you guys to what's going on in the SALT Network is an exciting thing for me, and I'm thankful that you guys have been a part of that with us. Probably the most important thing you need to know about my wife and I and then Caleb and Brandy today is that we are doing this diet initiative to start January called Whole30. And anybody ever heard of the Whole30 diet plan before? So Caleb and I are still kind of trying to figure out exactly what it all entails. But basically, the big things for me are that I can't eat bread and cheese. And I think I've probably had either bread or cheese and usually both probably every day that I've been alive since I was able to eat those things. And so... The, the tricky thing is we started it seven days ago, and you follow kind of the plan, and the, the, the people who are in charge of this diet tell you that about six or seven days after you start, you're supposed to just crash and, and maybe even pass out because my body's going to start to realize it's not getting the fast sugar and, and all this stuff. All that to be said, if I pass out at some point during this, um, I don't know if you guys have, have a backup plan, but really just look to them, and they should know what to do. I might need a Danish or something from out there. So that's the only thing I wanted to get out of the way that just so you guys know, I don't know what's about to happen, but on a serious note, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to be in this book, 1 Corinthians, with you guys. We've been going through it as, as a church with Cornerstone as well, and just so relatable to, to what's going on in our day and age today as Paul's just writing a letter to a church that's in the middle of a culture that doesn't believe in, in the same God that the church worships and believes and, and honestly, I can relate a lot to the Corinthian people as well. One of the commentaries I was reading, uh, a guy named Anthony Thistleton, this is what he says about Corinth. He says, it's a deeply competitive, self-sufficient, and entrepreneurial culture marked by ambitions to succeed. Competition, patronage, so supporting like a key leader, consumerism, and multi-form layers of success were part of the air that was breathed by the citizens of Corinth. And so I'm sure you guys have been talking about it, but just picture this bustling city with a lot going on, a lot of people moving in and out. Everybody's kind of competing with one another to, to climb the ladder and try to get to the top. And he says this is like the air that they breathe. And so they would have been shaped by these ideas, kind of the heartbeat of their city. When, when a Corinthian woke up in the morning, including a Corinthian Christian, they had just kind of that, that motto of what can I do to get ahead kind of just like, if I don't take care of myself, then who can? And they're all just kind of trying to climb this ladder. And, and I was a student athlete in college, and I think that I've been shaped a lot by this same way of thinking of just um, life is a big competition and success is what I need to chase after. And so I really relate a lot to, to the situation that the Corinthians are in. And then all of us, whether you're like me at all in those ways or not, we're, we're really affected by what was affecting Corinth which was this, that the culture was threatening to shape the church more than the gospel was shaping the church. And so I'm excited for you guys to get to keep studying the book because that's all Paul does is he just kind of 
goes with issue after issue that the church is dealing with and shows them how they're being shaped more by what their culture says than what the gospel says about who they are and what they believe. So we're going to be in in chapter 1 today, verses 10 through 17, if you guys want to turn there in your Bibles. So 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. Uh, this is where Paul is going to actually now start to get into like the first major issue that he wants to deal with with the church. The first nine verses were like a, a greeting, and he's talking to them about how Jesus started their church, he's going to sustain their church, and then he's going to be the finisher of their church. But now he gets into some specifics, as we'll see. So let me read this for us, and then I'll give you kind of an overview of where we're going. Starting in verse 10, this is Paul. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Some translations will say no splits. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, brothers. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Some translations will say, I belong to, to Cephas. I belong, so follow, belong. Then he asks this rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. Okay, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So, what we have here is Paul addressing the church, and the big issue is divisions or splits, okay? And he's going to kind of deal with this in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, and we're just going to look at the beginning that he kind of lays the groundwork for today. And so some of the things that we'll look at um, and that we'll talk about together, he's going to expand those themes throughout the first four chapters, but we get the beginning of it all today. And so let me just tell you his, his main point and then kind of how we're going to try to seek to understand it together. So what Paul is saying, if you look back at verse 10, he's telling them he wants them to unite. Okay, he's saying you guys are divided, you've split off into these factions. I want you to, here's the main point, unite around Jesus and boast in his gospel alone. If I could simply sum up what Paul is is telling them he wants them to do, what his main point is, unite around Jesus and boast in his gospel alone. But to understand that point, what I want to do together this morning is kind of just start asking the question of why is Paul saying that? Okay, so when we look at it, we're going to see really three things. The first thing we'll see is we'll, we'll see this text reveal something about human nature. You know, there's a reason that they started splitting off like this, and it's a reason that's common to all of us. We're also going to see something about the gospel of Jesus itself. And so when we look at Paul's response, he's responding to them because of something about the nature of the gospel. And we'll look at that. And then thirdly, he's so concerned because of something about the nature of the church that's being compromised here in these first seven verses. Okay, so we'll look at human nature, we'll look at the gospel, and we'll look at the church. Let's jump in with the first one, looking at human nature. And so look at verse 12 with me. Let me read that one for you again. It says, here's what I mean, guys. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So in a competitive culture like Corinth, where everyone is success-driven and and everyone is trying to climb this this ladder and looking over their shoulders to see who's coming after them, there's a lot of fear that would develop in that. I think three key fears, and and you'll probably relate to some of these, is is the fear of being alone would be one of them. Like maybe you'll get left behind by everyone who's running ahead so fast. The fear of being a failure, 
of not reaching success, and then the fear of being inadequate, of, of kind of seeing the, the picture of success that's been laid out in your city and for us just in our world, and kind of realizing that I, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to get there. I think, you know, maybe my neighbor, this guy, he's, he's super talented, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to that vision of success. And these three fears, the fear of being alone, a failure, and being inadequate, bring about three just deep human needs that are just true of us across the board as people. It's the need to belong or else we'll be alone, the need to be affirmed, or else we'll be a failure. And then we also have this deep need for heroes, because deep down all of us kind of know that we, we need somebody else to, to win for us. We're, we are inadequate in and of ourselves. And so let's look at those three needs in light of, of what this says about human nature. And the, the key passage here is, is verse 12. So the first one, we need to belong. That verse 12, he says, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. I told you the other, another word you could use there in translation is this word, I belong to one of these people. What the Corinthians were doing is they were dividing up in their church based on the name of these different human leaders. And, and that's, that's true of us as well. We kind of all need a, a name to belong to. You know what I mean? Imagine if you were a, a baby and you were born and then you weren't given a name. And for years and years and years, no one ever named you. And people will kind of just, the first thing you ask somebody when you meet them is you ask, what is your name? We can't really live without a sense of belonging. And what we see happening with these, these Corinthians is they have attached themselves to the name of their favorite leader or, in their opinion, the most successful leader in that church. And so they're, they're fighting amongst one another saying, I belong to him, I belong to him, I'm a follower of him. And all this activity that Paul is jumping into and addressing is just a symptom of the fact that we as human beings just have this deep desire and, and need inherent to us to, to belong. We need to belong to some name. So whether it's your family name, whether you associate more with the name of your business or your company, the name of your town, your state, um, sports teams are popular in, in this way, maybe like a lifestyle brand. And so I've, I've never been super into yoga, but my wife, or my wife and my mom do it sometimes when we go home for a Christmas break and... Has anyone ever heard of the store Lululemon before? All the way out here in Boone, Iowa. So I don't know a ton about it yet, but Lululemon is like the name right now in yoga, lifestyle, wear. And my mom has gotten me some Lululemon clothes for Christmas. So even though I don't do yoga, I have associated myself with the name Lululemon. And so if, anyone, if I was ever in a conversation about yoga and we're talking and we're just trying to, I'm trying to relate, trying to help them understand where do I belong in like the world of yoga, I'm of the Lululemon people. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit about, about what it might be like. And, and on a serious note, just imagine if you grew up without having a name. We all need a name. We all need a place to belong. And that's kind of what's driving these Corinthians to be like, okay, well, who do I belong to? Who do I follow? Maybe it's Paul. Maybe it's Apollos. And, and they're doing this with human leaders. The second one, we need to be affirmed. And so I follow and I belong to fill in the blank. What the Corinthians are doing is they're boasting. Okay, so what it means to boast is you basically look out into the world and you want to tell the world, I'm okay because of this. You know, I, I, you look for, for affirmation in it. And what the Corinthians were doing is they were boasting in whatever human leader it was that they belonged to because they said, that guy right there affirms me. Because I'm attached to him, I'm okay. So in the hustle and bustle, remember of the city, super competitive, they in their head thought, if I could just attach myself to that leader, I belong to him then they would be affirmed. And so 
I was talking to one of my friends over, over Christmas break. He actually lives out in Los Angeles, which is probably a little bit more like Corinth than Boone in, in some of these ways in terms of being a big city. And, and how many of you guys are, are good with like social media? Would you raise your hand if you actually, if you got a decent understanding of it? So for those of you that don't have your hands up, I'm more with you. I don't understand it a whole lot, but I've been getting into it a little bit lately and trying to figure it out if I'm going to be trying to reach the next generation. But my friend Jay, so he works in social media for like an environmental activist group out in Los Angeles. He was originally from Michigan, just like me, moved out to the big city and has very much been a part of a, of a culture that's like Corinth's. And his job is social media, okay? So he's learned how to market, and he's learned how to communicate and how to promote things. He's around influential people and celebrities all the time, just kind of the whole, the whole deal you would think of of somebody moving out to Los Angeles. And we're sitting there talking, and, and the, the thing he wanted to talk to me about was the fact that he was lonely and he felt like a failure. And he's telling me, he's like, it, it doesn't make sense because I'm surrounded by people. I work with a great team. I have a great mentor at the office. Um, Los Angeles is obviously super populated. I'm meeting with famous people all the time. I'm doing a really good job with my uh, work. And so I shouldn't feel lonely and I shouldn't feel like a failure, but I do. And he's like, you know what the problem is? I think it's social media. And I was like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And this is, this is just kind of the dynamic that he laid out. And so maybe this actually happens for some of you. If you don't do social media, just look in on, on this as just a snapshot of of boasting, okay? So he explained to me that what happens on social media is all of his friends in the city will post pictures of, you know, like I went out to dinner with my friends tonight and here's a picture of it. I climbed a mountain today, I went on a hike, I met this celebrity and what everybody's doing on social media is we're putting out to the world an image and a picture to show them basically that we're okay, we're, we're successful, we're doing well, I'm having fun, my life is interesting, my life is exciting. I'm not a failure because look at, look at this post. Look at this person that I met. Look at this really interesting food that I'm having. And so as I'm talking to my friend Jay, he, he's like, you know, I'll wake up on a Saturday morning and I'll, I'll uh, just kind of read a book and drink a cup of coffee at my house and I'll feel really satisfied and content with my life in that moment and feel like I had a good morning. But then I hop on social media and I see that one of my friends happened to be in Sweden all of a sudden and he climbed the Alps. And then I feel like, wow, am I really doing anything? Am I just this, this failure? And he, he just kind of kept walking me through just story after story of all the people around him that were posting on their social media feeds about what they were doing. And what this is, it's a means of, of boasting. And it doesn't even have to be outward bragging, but just showing the world, like, this is why I'm okay. I'm okay because fill in the blank. And the interesting thing he said is, then I'll actually go meet these people in real life, and they'll think that their life isn't interesting because they see my social media posts. And so it just kind of repeats itself, and goes in and out. But we all have this need to be affirmed, and social media right now just happens to be a tool where we can show people, hey, this is me, this is what, what I'm all about, and then you can either like it or you can, can dislike it. And I'd be curious, what, what do you guys hold out to the world to show the world that you're okay? Tons of things. The, the other way to ask the question is, is, what do you boast in? Maybe it's your health or your looks, the quality of your family, your association with a, a particular group, your resume, your income, you know, anything. But it's anything that we just kind of, as we feel inadequate, show to the world, like, I'm, I'm not inadequate, I'm not a failure, I'm okay because, because look at this. And that's what was happening in Corinth as they looked to human leaders. And then this next one just kind of blends in with the first two. We also need heroes. 
Okay, so the fact that the Corinthians were fighting about which leader was the best definitely shows that they were viewing these people as more than just kind of a detached person that they admire, but as a hero that they were seeking to unite themselves to. It says there's quarreling among them in verse 11. And that would totally make sense because we fight to defend our heroes because our heroes hold our hope. And if you just followed the, the, uh, the election season that we just went through a little while ago, all of the fighting that goes on over politics is because, right or wrong, you know, our, the system in America is, is what it is, but during the election season, we're kind of forced to pick a candidate that we think and we hope is going to bring success and bring whatever we think is America should be like, and then we fight with each other about which one it should be, and they fight with each other on the stage, and we like that. And so it's because we've made them heroes. We've made them a type of, of savior. The, the commentator, Anthony Thistleton, talks about Corinth, and he says, We know that in Corinth, many sought to improve their status by finding respected and influential patrons. Corinth was having a power struggle, not a theological controversy. And that's important to note because the divisions, the splits that were happening in the Corinthian church weren't over theology because that's actually a way that a church can and should separate itself and, and people should divide over what we believe. They were just dividing over which hero they wanted to, to belong to, which person they thought could bring them success. And so a hero kind of fits in this position of, of a biblical word we would use called like a mediator. So what that means is you have yourself who you kind of feel like, I'm a little bit inadequate. I want to be successful. I need kind of like a go-between person that if I could ride on their coattails, they could win the victory for me. That's basically what we want a hero to do. So maybe I'll, I'll tell you a little story that I heard about that illustrates just the nature of what a, what a mediator does. So hundreds of miles from here, there was a, a kingdom that sat across the sea, and it had, had been once prosperous when their king reigned well in that kingdom. There was blessing. The city was well known um, among the whole nation, but the king decided to leave, and when he left, there was a curse that fell upon the city by the sea. So now this city was hopeless, it was cursed, it was laughed at and scorned by the rest of the surrounding um, countries around it, and as they looked at it, and so they would always just kind of long that maybe one day their king would come back and bring back the blessing, and eventually he did. The king returned, he came back to this, this little kingdom by the sea, and when he came back, it was actually at the time that some powers from the west were wanting to come in and take over and war against the kingdom by the sea. And when that happened, the king that had returned actually defeated them, and upon defeating the power from the west, this curse was lifted, blessing was returned to the city, they were rioting in the streets, they were building up monuments and pictures of this king. And that's a little bit about what a mediator would do. This, this city is in a place of, of needing blessing. They know they can't get it on their own, and they're under a curse. A king comes in and wins a victory for them so that they could then have blessing. Um, the problem with looking at human mediators, however, is that the city of Cleveland, Ohio, is going to be really struggling if LeBron James decides to move away again, and they will be back under the curse. My wife and I are, are Cleveland Cavaliers fans, and that's basically the storyline of what happened when LeBron was in Cleveland. He left Cleveland. They were cursed. He came back, and victory again. They beat the Golden State Warriors. But now everyone just has anxiety that what's going to happen if he leaves. But LeBron's a mediator, right? They call him King James because through him, Cleveland can experience success. And we all do that with human heroes. That's what the Corinthians were doing with the leaders 
in this church. If I attach myself to him, then maybe I could one day be a winner. I could be successful. And hopefully you've seen that these, these needs, the need to belong, the need to be affirmed, and the need for heroes, it's, it's universal across all of us, no matter how it plays out in our life. And so that's why what was happening in Corinth makes a lot of sense. They were dividing based on these human leaders because of those needs that they have. But Paul's response to this is that this shouldn't be. They shouldn't be dividing. And he's doing this because of something he knows about the gospel of Jesus. And what he points out to them essentially is that they're looking to human leaders for what they should be finding in Christ alone. So look down at verse 17 with me again. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so if I could translate what Paul is trying to communicate to them there, he's not saying I, didn't, I wasn't planning on baptizing people, because of, of course he was, that's what we do as Christians, when people come to follow Jesus. But what he's saying is, I didn't come to create a following for myself. I came to create a following for Jesus. Okay, I didn't come to create a following. I didn't come to to baptize people into my name. I came to preach the gospel. I came to preach the gospel so that people would follow him. So as he looks at what's happening in the church with people splitting off into different factions, he's he's confused because he's like, this isn't what what I started. Whatever's happening now isn't because of what I did. I came and preached the gospel, which should have created a following for Jesus. But what had happened is, like I said, they'd been starting to be influenced more by the culture than by the gospel. And there was a group of people that kind of rivaled the preachers, the Christian preachers of the day, um, running around town called the sophists. And so our word sophisticated would come from the, the sophists of this time. And what they were is they were public speakers. They were orators. And their whole game was to build a following around themselves through their style and their skill and their rhetoric. Uh, Thistleton says they were influenced by a kind of rhetoric that was more concerned with winning than with truth. Too often the goal is to win approval for yourself than for your case. Okay, so that's what these, these, uh, these sophists were all about. They would come in and they would speak, and there really wouldn't be much of a, a point to their message, but they would do it so wonderfully and mesmerizingly that people would start to follow them. And the result is that the message didn't really matter. They were trying to create a following for themselves. The big difference in a Christian preacher and in the, a Christian and the gospel is that the gospel message builds a following for Jesus through the message of the cross. Okay, now the, the caveat here is that this isn't to say that preachers and, and Christians shouldn't try to communicate well and understand um, how to make people really understand the message of Christianity. But the, the key difference between a, a sophist and a preacher would be that the, the sophist is using rhetoric and eloquence and wisdom, like the text says, to bring a following for themselves. The, the Christian is trying to communicate well so that these people will understand Jesus better. So eloquence had created factions around performers, but the gospel creates unity around Christ alone. And so when Paul is pleading here for unity in verse 10, He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's trying to unite them back around the gospel. And then he gives us this rhetorical question in verse 13, where he says this. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Here's the rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? 
with these three questions, we get Paul actually saying those three needs, the need to belong, the need to be affirmed, and the need for heroes, they're actually supposed to be found in Jesus alone. And so he talks about baptism. He says, were you baptized into the name of Paul? What he's pointing to is this, this sense of belonging, of being identified in Christ. When he talks about crucifixion, he says, were you, were you crucified by Paul? He's actually talking to their need of being affirmed and being justified in Christ. And when he says, is Christ defied, he's, he's rhetorically saying, you're united to Jesus. We're all, we're all united into him. If, if he's been divided, that means you've gone searching after other heroes. He's the hero. He's the mediator. And we, we have this mediation through Christ by our union with him. And so his whole thing with the gospel is he's like, guys, when I came and preached the gospel to you, you should have believed that message and found your identity, your justification, and your mediation in Christ alone. So let's look at identity for a second. In our identity, our belonging is in Christ, and this is actually pictured in baptism. That's why he says, were you, were you baptized into Paul? And this is the good news for us, guys, that our, our identity is secure in Christ. So verses 1 through 9, I think Jesus' name is mentioned like nine or ten times in that as Paul describes what the church is. And it keeps saying, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And so where these Corinthians were finding their identity and their sense of belonging in people, Paul is pleading with them, the gospel is actually the good news that your identity and your belonging is found in Jesus. And so Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection defines us more than and differently than anything else. Because the Bible is clear that we're going to take on different roles as people, but our roles don't define us. Being a follower of Jesus defines you more than being a husband or a wife, a parent, uh, an employee, a worker. It defines you more than and in a different way, in a fundamental way. His name defines you. So that fear that we have of being alone, Paul's saying, guys, you're not going to be alone. That need has been met for you in the gospel. Justification was the second one. So the affirmation that we all need is found in Christ, and it was one at the cross. In verse 10, he tells them to, to be of the same mind and the same judgment. It's, a, it's about this issue. It's about what, what justifies you, what affirms you. And when he talks about crucifixion, was Paul crucified for you? He's asking this rhetorical question to ask them, how do you think that you're affirmed? What do you think justifies you? So that anxiety that we all feel, the reason that, that anxious people in L.A. are posting things on Instagram and, and Twitter all the time is because we have this constant feeling and need to be justified. When I was talking to my friend Jay, that's kind of the, the point we ended up landing on is, is it seems like all of us just feel inadequate and feel like we need to show the world that we're not. But in the cross of Christ, in, in a bloody cross, not a perfect Instagram picture, we have all the evidence in the world that we are justified before God. And this is really good news for, for especially people that, that are vulnerable and weak because if, if we were to be justified in the world, if we were to be affirmed based on our talents, our abilities, um, our strength, like the Corinthians were trying to be, then there'd be a lot of people left out that could never be affirmed, could never be welcomed in, could never be justified. So it's really good need for the vulnerable, for the vulnerable people because everybody qualifies for the cross. And it's also really good news for people that are honest with themselves because we're all vulnerable. We're all broken. We're all weak. We're not as strong as, as we um, may put out on, on our social media. And so that's why the gospel is such good news, that all of us can be justified before God. And so if you remember, we talked about boasting. The, the boast of the Christian, the thing that we point to to say, this is why I'm okay, is the cross. 
He was rejected so that we could be affirmed and accepted. And then the hero issue, right? This, this mediator. Paul's like, guys, Jesus is the hero that you should be following around. So when you split up in factions around these other heroes, he asks, is Christ divided? How are you? You're united to him. Are you taking his body and tearing it apart? The splits were, were contradictory to what it meant to be somebody who believes the gospel. And so for all their, their franticness of searching for success and looking for somebody to bridge the gap and mediate that for them, he says, Jesus has, has done that. He's mediated your salvation. He's in you. You're in him. And when you believe that, he can't be divided. And so Paul just kind of comes in with the gospel and shows them why they must have stopped believing it somewhere down the road in order for this to be happening in their church. And then lastly, talking about the church, when you, when you read these, these uh, seven verses, it reveals something about the nature of the church. And we asked the question at the beginning, you know, is the church being influenced more by the culture or the gospel? I think Paul gives us some help here about how the church can safeguard itself to not be influenced more by the culture than the gospel in context of what's going on here. So look back at verse 10 with me for a second. The, the language that's used here when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, there be no divisions among you, but you be united by the same mind and the same judgment. Um, people, commentators and scholars have agreed for centuries that the language that Paul is using here is, is very similar to like military political language of the day when, say, like a, a nation that was once united is beginning to divide. So imagine Rome at the time. If all the different city-states and nation-states of Rome started to split apart, the emperor would get up and say, I appeal to you to unite back together. And so Paul's using this, this political language, this really significant language, talking to just this, this random local church in Corinth. So Paul doesn't, he doesn't just have like a preference for harmony where he's like, you know, I'm just the kind of guy that the community I lead, I want us all to be on the same page and get along. It's not that. It's, he's actually saying the very nature of what a church is is that it's united around Jesus. And this is more serious than if the Roman Empire had split apart. So he's given them this, just, this political imperative, and he's commanding them by the name of Jesus. So if, if Rome was splitting apart, you'd command all these states by the name of Caesar. He's saying, local church, by the name of Jesus, who is your king, you need to unite back together. And just as even a sidebar the fact that Paul would talk to the, to the church like that shows just how significant the church is. He's talking to people in the midst of a, of a kingdom and an empire like they're their own kingdom and empire. And so all the way out here in Boone, Iowa, what we're doing here on Sunday morning and, and joining in with believers all across the world is more significant than what's ever happening in any government around the world. We're a city on a hill. We're, we're a kingdom um, following a king. And Paul shows that in his, his appeal to the church. And when we ask the question, what has influenced the divide, we've been, I've been trying to communicate that it's because they've been shaped more by the culture than the gospel. And it's really around two key issues that were really important to Corinthians, power and progress. Okay, so the church was shaped more by the culture and how it viewed where power comes from and then what progress looks like. When you think about power, they would have looked to, to the orator, the mouth of the orator, as that's where power, that's how you wield power. You manipulate, you use fine language, you dress up what you're saying, and that's how you move people. That's how you wield power, is the mouth of the orator. And for progress, 
This is more of a our culture word for it, but the ladder is, is what I think. So maybe for them, it'd be like the steps going up to the buildings with the pillars. But when they thought about progress, they thought about climbing the ladder, going up. And these two images would have been primarily how Corinthians viewed power and progress. But the two images Paul gives them in this passage, interestingly, correct this. He tells them about the cross and then baptism. It's kind of interesting how much he talks about baptism in this passage, and I was, I was trying to investigate it this week, and the way he uses both of these things, the cross and baptism, are really meant as a corrective for how they view power and how they view progress. So let's start with, with power. We'd say the cross versus the mouth, the mouth of the order. Verse 17, he basically says, if I had used words of eloquent wisdom when I preached the gospel to you, I would have emptied the cross of its power. You catch that? If I would have came in and drawn attention to myself with the way I was speaking and mesmerized you with my appearance and my performance, I would have actually emptied the cross of its power and I would have been useless. And this is why, because the mouth, the mouth of the orator, it relies more on man's power to manipulate than the power of the cross. It actually distracts from the substance of the cross and power is lost. And so a person gets up and starts speaking And you get so uh, enamored with just how good they are at moving their words around and talking that you, who cares what they're talking about? Again, I think this happens a lot in the election season. Sometimes we're we're trying to follow what is even being said by the people debating. And then we just go, you know, I don't know what they're talking about, but that guy, it sounds like he at least has it together and is putting sentences together. So I'll go with him. And what he's just done is he's tricked us all by his, his style because the content of his message might have been the, he might have been saying the same thing that the other person did, but he just said it a little more clearly. That's, that's the power of the mouth, but that's what Corinth would have looked at. Paul says power is actually from the cross. And so what's going on here is this tension between style and substance. Let me explain to you what I mean. So one of my things that's like a, a, a pet peeve to my wife is that I, I always sing like a couple lines of a song and never the right words for it. And so I just have bits and pieces of songs, and I, I basically get like the melody, or I don't even know the music words, but the melody, the harmony, the whatever that, that part of it is, I get that right, but I always get the words wrong. So I get the style right. I get the substance wrong. And have you guys ever um, been listening to the radio, and for whatever reason you decide to actually listen to the words of whatever the song is that you have been humming for months, and you listen to the words, and you go, I really like that song, and I've even been singing the words, and I've been singing along, but now that I listen to what he's saying, if it's country music, it's either so simple that you're like, this isn't even profound at all. Like, this was, that's the same thing that's in that song, that's in that song, that's in that song, that's in that song. They just changed, the substance is the same, but they changed the style around it a little bit. Or, you, some, in some of these songs, you realize just how terrible they are and what they're talking about, but they styled it up so that you could, you could sing along. That's style over substance. The orator would have preferred style, but as Christians, and Paul as a preacher, has to prefer substance. But the temptation always is to, to prefer style over substance. It's a little bit like this. So I, brought, I was eating this on the way here, and I brought it up. So on the, the diet that we're on, this is one of the granola bars I'm allowed to eat on the diet. And it's, this is a nice wrapper. It's bright, it's catchy, it's clear, it's got the right, um, got a little picture right here. The, the style of this wrapper is really good, and it better be, because look at what this looks like, this granola bar. It's like, I've been trying to figure out what I would say this looks like. It looks like 
when your car runs something over, and like it's mashed, so it's like a mixture of squirrel and leaves and berries and, and just like muck. But the, hear me out, the substance of this bar is so bad that they had to style it up with this pink package to make me want to eat it, right? The comparison here that, that Paul's doing though, is, and think about this, he talks about the cross. The cross, we sung about it, it's a, it was a rugged cross, a bloody cross. What happened to Jesus was, was horrific. And in this time in Corinth, these, these people that actually, some of them were Christians, had lost confidence that we could really win anybody with a bloody cross, a rugged cross, an ugly, bloody, crucified Savior. And so they started to rely on style instead of the substance of, of the cross. They doubted its power. And Paul is pushing back here and saying, actually, all the power is in the cross, not in the style that we dress it up in. He, and you guys will get to this verse in a couple weeks, but in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, this is, Paul elaborates on this point. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a statement saying, I know how ugly the cross is, but I also know that's where the power is. And so rather than distracting you with eloquent speech like the orators, I just gave it to you straight, plain and simple. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I myself, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's key because the orators, remember, they were building followers for themselves the cross creates a following for God. And so at the center of, of the church and the controlling visual that we need to have when we think about power and where power comes from is, is the cross. It's not cool. It's not hip. It's bloody. It's ugly. But that's where true power comes from. And if we're tempted the other way, if we're tempted towards style, if we're tempted towards the orator, the mouth, we'll actually drift like the Corinthians did. The second one is, is progress. And so I told you the, they would have pictured like the ladder as this picture of progress. But then Paul talks about baptism. So as he's talking to them, they're, he's like, were you baptizing this person? You baptizing that person? I'm glad I didn't baptize you. He's not dissing baptism. He's not saying we shouldn't baptize anymore. He's just saying that you are viewing your place of belonging and then progress and success as being attached to, as belonging to this leader. Okay, climbing the ladder through baptizing yourself into this other name. Christian baptism, as we understand it, is not about climbing up, but about going down, right? It's about going down into the water. It's a picture of death before life. It's a picture of, of humility. And it doesn't seem like progress to the world. It doesn't seem like progress to the world to stand up in front of everybody and renounce who you used to be and say, I am now giving it all up and deciding to follow this crucified Savior. But get this, if we, if we let baptism be the picture, if we let the water be the image that helps us understand progress, it actually brings unity. Because climbing ladders, which is what the Corinthians do, and creates division. Because you find your leader, you go with them, you compete, it's cutthroat, and you go off in different directions, and then we no longer have a church. But baptism makes us all meet in the water. It makes us all meet as, as humble sinners that are saved by Jesus. Baptism, that image of progress, 
makes God get the glory because we're being baptized into his name and we're all following along him. The same way that the gospel creates a following for Jesus, the baptism is a picture of the gospel. And so we make progress through following Jesus, not creating a name for ourselves and going off into these different directions. And later on in chapter 12, he's going to say, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's a, that's a verse about unity, unity in the church all around Jesus. And so as Paul is, is addressing this church and trying to keep it from destroying itself, he really wants them to know the church's power comes from the substance of the cross, not the style that we dress it up in like the orators. And its progress looks more like sinners going down into the water and less like competitors climbing up ladders. And so I think this is a good text for us as, as Christians and for you guys as a church, us as a network, to remind us of who we are um, as the culture keeps giving us different and different visions of, of power, of progress, of, of what we should be pursuing. And so before we close, just to, to say it again, what Paul's main point was, that the church is the people who unite around Jesus, not human leaders, and they boast in his gospel alone. To, to fight back against this, we need to know our tendency to look for belonging and affirmation and attach ourselves to heroes and people that aren't Jesus. We need to fight to keep the gospel central and know that it's, it's in Jesus that all these things that we need are found, not in people. And then lastly, we just talked about like these, these images of blood and water, cross and baptism. Let those shape how we view power and progress as we walk together as his followers. So let's meditate on those things and pray as we close in worship. Heavenly Father, it's always humbling to look in at what was happening with another church thousands of years ago. And I'm thankful, God, that you were at work to, to bring the Corinthians back towards you and back towards the gospel, back towards unity and those things. And I pray for, for Stonebridge Church here in Boone and, and their role in this community, their role in the SALT Network, that we would be people, churches, a network that lifts up the name of Jesus and not our own name, and that we would do that uh, together, unified, um, and not, not dividing up. So thank you for this word today, and we're excited to worship you again now. Amen.